Good evening. It is good to see those of you back again tonight who were here last night. Uh, good to see some others who were not able to be here last night that have come out to join us this evening. Uh, I appreciate very much the opportunity to be with you this week and to share some lessons on this subject. Uh, it is a vital subject, and uh, I'm not going to begin tonight by uh, saying nice things about Edwin for a couple of reasons. One is I have very limited time to cover this material, and two, that kind of undermines my credibility if I say too much nice about him, uh, but I do appreciate the invitation and being able to be here. And, and last night, uh, we had quite a bit of material to cover about our need for the Bible, understanding that without it, we could understand really nothing about the true nature or character of God, understanding nothing about ourselves and the role God that intends for us to fulfill, and, and kind of seeing how important the Bible was, and I, I had a lot of material that we tried to squeeze into the 45-minute time period that we have. Tonight, I have more material. Uh, tomorrow night, there's more than that. And Thursday night, my outline is the longest by far. And, and that would kind of scare you if it weren't for the fact that I'm locked into 45 minutes no matter what each evening. So I'm going to do the best that I can in trying to present this material to you. Uh, I've already been asked to provide uh, the copies of the outline for you, and I'm planning to do that. And with that in mind, some of the passages that I'll reference tonight, I'm simply going to reference and not take the time to turn and read all of those. You can go back and read those uh, on your own. Those will be in the outlines that I am providing for you. But when we think about the idea of needing the Bible and understanding that a man-made book would really do nothing to help us understand God, to help us understand our true nature and what God wants us to do, we then quickly come to an understanding of the fact that we need a revelation from God. We need something that God has given us to explain who He is and who we are and what we're supposed to be. And what I want to talk about tonight is the idea or the evidence to suggest that we possess such a thing. And before we do that, though, I want to make mention of a quote that I heard a number of weeks ago. I went to the movie theater to see the Ben Stein a documentary. Some of you may have heard about that documentary that he put out entitled Expelled. And in that documentary, it's one of the few times I've gone to a movie theater and went and saw a movie all by myself. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing to do that, but not very many people want to go and watch a documentary in a movie theater. But he, he exposed the tendency in academia to expel anyone who believes in intelligent design that there could be a creation in the, to the universe, that in, in our modern academic world, the universities, especially in the science departments, any teacher who would believe that is just kind of shunned and cast out of the academic world. And the whole documentary shed light on this fact and how narrow-minded and closed-minded our colleges and universities have become. But at the end of that movie, he did an interview with the noted atheist Richard Dawkins who's written a best-selling book, The God Delusion, in which he attacks the God of the Bible as being the most malevolent, evil, angry, homophobic, just bad character that's ever been written about in fiction, as he described it. And Ben Stein, in his interview with Richard Dawkins, said, what would you say if when you finally die, you open up your eyes and you stand before the Creator and there is a God, if you consider that possibility, how would you deal with that? What if you're wrong in attacking this concept of God? And Richard Dawkins sat there for a minute, and being as intellectually honest as he could be, he's got a lot of degrees and a lot of letters after his name, he made the statement that I would have to ask God 
why he went to such great lengths to hide himself. Why he didn't provide more evidence for his existence. Why he didn't reveal himself to mankind. And that astonishes me. Because God has revealed himself. Over the years, he did so through various means. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we're told God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. But that passage tells us that over the years, God did a lot of things to reveal himself. Sometimes God revealed himself just kind of in generic ways. His power and His existence and things like creation, this general revelation of God. His existence or presence. Psalm 19.1 Heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Or Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 where Paul references that we should know that God exists just by the things that are created around us. We understand His divine nature, His eternal power. Creation, God has done that. On other occasions, God revealed more. By mouth, He delivered word-for-word messages. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He spoke to them. He told them things. Or in Numbers, the 12th chapter, and in verse 8, where God makes the point that He spoke mouth-to-mouth with Moses and gave him direct revelation from God. Through the prophets, many times He spoke in visions. And in dreams, there's more of those than we could possibly reference this evening. How many times God delivered a message to one of His messengers through this dream or this vision or these signs. He spoke through angels on a number of occasions as well. He spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, in verse 12, in a still small voice to tell him about his presence and what he wanted. He communicated through a donkey and opening its mouth to talk to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, verse 28. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, at the transfiguration, he spoke from a bright cloud, saying that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He spoke in Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he has explained him to us. We're told that in the Gospel of John. Chapter 14 and verse 9. He revealed items for us to know and for our keeping, as Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. That we may observe all the words of this law. That there are things that God revealed to us. And what we're talking about tonight, what we're seeking, And what we're asking is, do we still possess an inspired message from God? God's inspired Word is what we're talking about this week. And tonight, specifically, the claims to inspiration. And we have to understand what the word inspired means before we can go further in that discussion. I know most of you have studied this word before. If you're Christians, I'm assuming at some point you've studied it and going through Bible studies and talking about what this means. And when we try to look at the meaning of that word in English, the word derives from the Latin, inspirare, which means to breathe. The primary definition of the word is to move by divine influence. That's what Webster says. 
or to fill with creative power. It comes from the idea of being filled with breath. That's not your own. God gives it. God given breath that fills you, that inspires you, or that moves you. I don't know very much Latin. That's what I'm told about Latin. I know a little bit more Greek. The Greek word that's translated inspired in the New Testament is a compound word. Theosnustos. The first part of that word theos means God. And you might recognize that from words like theology. Or from atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God. We recognize that part of the word meaning God, the pneuma on the end, meaning air or breath, pneumonia is a word in the English language that we get from this Greek word. And it literally means God breathes. The same concept or idea that's handed down from Latin, maybe a little more specifically spelled out for us, that this is God breathed, not just a breath, but something that originates with deity. If that's what the word inspired means, and the implications of that word are far-reaching, In the fields of Christian apologetics or biblical theology, they have somewhat technical terms that they use when they're talking about inspiration of the Scriptures. One of those items is talking about verbal inspiration as opposed to any other type. And verbal inspiration means that God literally chose the words that were used. It distinguishes that concept from maybe the idea that God planted ideas in individuals' heads and then they were free to explain it however they wanted to. When we use inspired in modern English. Oftentimes we need some type of idea inspiration. I I was inspired. I I got a neat idea. The light bulb went on over my head. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about inspired. It means verbal inspiration where the words themselves were chosen by God, where He inspired the text itself. Another term is plenary inspiration. That word literally means full. And it conveys the idea of a complete or absolute inspiration. That means that every word was given by God. And every word that was given was preserved. That's going to play a more major part in what we discuss tomorrow night with the accuracy of the Bible. If every word, every phrase was there by God and is there for a reason and everything God intended is conveyed, then we have a complete revelation by God where each and every word was chosen by Him and was conveyed exactly the way he wanted them conveyed. That's what we're talking about when we talk about an inspired message from God. And if the Scriptures are truly God-breathed, then we should be able to easily put them to the test. If they're truly God-breathed, if we have a verbal plenary inspiration, what are some things that you would expect to find when you look at that message? Well, you'd expect to find no contradictions, for one thing. You would expect if it came from God, if every word came from God, if it's perfect and complete the way He is, that's part of His nature. That He is perfect and He makes no mistakes. And so His message would have no mistakes. That there'd be this unity and harmony of ideas and thoughts. You'd expect, if it's God-breathed, that there would be no factual errors or verifiable errors of any sort. Not just contradictions within the text, but nothing that can be looked at that we find out through science or history or through some other means that it's wrong. No mistakes. An infallible revelation. 
If it's truly God-breathed, we would expect a revelation of the unknown. Items that man could not know on his own, apart from what God has told him. And as such, the claim of revelation or inspiration is a powerful claim. I think that's part of why it really is a rare claim to find. There have been a lot of books written over the years and a lot of religious leaders that have given their ideas and interpretations and teachings, but really there's been relatively few who've made a claim to be inspired in the verbal plenary sense of the word. There's very few individuals who come along and, and actually said that what I've written to you is exactly the word of God. But the Bible makes such a claim. In the passage that we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, Moses spoke of those things which had been revealed. He said, there are secret things that belong to God. There are things that have been revealed to us that belong to us and to our children. He claimed that that came from God. In fact, the original stone tablets were written upon by God. The finger of God wrote them. God actually produced those stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. That's the claim that's made in Scripture. The phrase, God said, or these are the words of the Lord, appear thousands of times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament alone, 2,700 times you have that sort of phrase. God said this. These are the words of the Lord. Here's what God said. Here's what He revealed to us. That's a claim of inspiration coming from the Holy Scripture. And the clear statements of the New Testament indicate this as well. Passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You might have expected us to start with that tonight where we read all Scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But we're told there all Scripture is inspired by God. That phrase, inspired by God, is that one Greek word, theopneustos. It's God-breathed, given from Him. Originates from Him exactly the way He wanted to say it. And when Timothy was receiving this message from Paul. Paul says all Scripture is that way. All Scripture, all the books that we have in our Bible were given by God through His inspiration. They come from Him and not from men. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. There's a claim to inspiration. Peter's not denying that at all. In fact, he says it's not open to one's own interpretation. There's some translation issues with this verse and some of the words that are used. He says it's not open to your own private interpretation because it never originated from man to begin with. It came from God. There were men who spoke it, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit. By the way, it's another interesting study that we don't have time to do tonight. Look at some of those passages where we might look and say, well, David said this, and yet the Bible says the Holy Spirit said this. God said this by the mouth of David, and that's the way it's spoken of in the pages of the New Testament. What Peter says here, they were moved by God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They, They didn't originate these words. They didn't come up with these words. They didn't come up with these phrases and these messages. They were given by God. 
And 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 12 and 13, a passage that very strongly supports the idea of a verbal plenary inspiration. Paul writes, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Combining spiritual with spiritual is literally what it says, and it doesn't provide the rest, those thoughts and words. But from what we get in the context earlier, Paul says these aren't words that we've learned. It's not human wisdom. It's not that Paul figured out a good way of explaining it. He says what I'm giving you is what God gave me. The Spirit chose the words. The Spirit chose the ideas and the words and explained it, and that claims a verbal, plenary inspiration. That the Bible, quite a few places, makes that claim. Now, we could spend all night looking at the passages where that's stated. I guess that would be worth doing. But with the time we have, I'd rather ask you, why should we believe that? Why should we believe this claim? What did we say earlier? Well, if it's truly God-breathed, what should we expect to find? What evidence should be provided that there's no contradictions? Well, we spoke last night about the unity and harmony of the Bible. We'll talk a little bit more tomorrow night about that, but when you consider the topics that are discussed, it's amazing that the Bible does not contradict itself. And I would challenge someone to bring that forward. And that statement sometimes may, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Ask them where. Ask somebody to give you the passages where the Bible contradicts itself and study it and see if there isn't a reasonable explanation for even some of those difficult passages. And that is made even more powerful when you consider the situation in which the Bible came into existence. And we talked about last night with the 1,600 years and 40 different authors and three languages, that points to a divine origin. What we would expect if it's God-breathed is for this to be the case. That we find no factual errors in historical or other verifiable data. Accuracy of the Bible will be discussed in greater detail tomorrow night. But the fields of history and archaeology and science have all been brought to bear. And there hasn't been a single verifiable fact where the Bible has been proven to be wrong. We'll discuss that tomorrow night. Some theories that man has where they believe the Bible's wrong. There's some of them where they believed in the past that the Bible's wrong and they've been overturned and they've been shown that the Bible was right. That it's Accurate, historically, scientifically, in other ways. That we would expect to find a revelation of information that man could not know on his own. Some of that could simply refer to items that are beyond our own experience, such as past events, the creation of the world. We weren't there. We didn't experience it. And the Bible talks about it. Past events where we weren't there, things that we couldn't understand. Maybe things from the spiritual realm. Understanding the forces that are at work and what's taking place behind the scenes. Beyond our experience. But an even greater evidence of the inspiration of the Scripture is provided in the realm of prophecy. Prophecies and miracles are the two great pillars of internal evidences that support the Bible's claim to inspiration and Jesus' claim to deity. If you want to study why the Bible is inspired, if you want to study why Jesus is the Son of God, you come back to prophecy and you come back to miracles. We're not going to be talking about miracles this week. 
That's a different study. That's proving the deity of Christ. But I do want us to talk about prophecy. Talk about the role that that plays in the Scriptures. And for the rest of our time this evening, I want us to consider that as much as we can. Beginning with the power of predictive prophecy. Because it clearly goes beyond the realm of man. The ability of man. How do we know this isn't a man-made book? Well, if we have true predictive prophecy, even though many people throughout history have claimed to predict the future, their forecasts are usually vague generalizations, and their success rate is extremely low. Failures happen more often than successes, even though they word their prophecies and predictions in such a way that there could be any number of ways it could come true. If you read your horoscope, you know, you will make an important decision today that could change your life. Well, what day doesn't that happen? What day is that not the case? And yet you'll read it and it might be there where nothing happened because you stayed home because you were sick. It still misses the mark, even though the prediction was so vague that nearly anything could be seen as a fulfillment of it. It's a given that man cannot know future events with certainty. Men cannot do that. We don't have that ability. But God Himself claims that power. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, God used this evidence to support His existence and His superiority. It's what He says in passages like Isaiah chapter 41, verse 23, or 42, verses 8 and 9, 46, verse 9 and 10. If you go back and look in those passages, there's a discussion that's taking place through Isaiah between God and the idol gods. And He says, challenge your idol gods to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Challenge those idol gods to speak and tell you what's going to take place before it happens. I can do that. They can't. I'm God because I know the end of a thing from the beginning. That's what God says in those passages. We'll look at one of them a little bit later on in our study. And specifically what He says there. But that's the wording. I can do it. I call it into existence before it comes to pass. I can tell you future events, and that's what makes me God. That's how you can know that I'm God. Because I exist outside the realm of time. God is the only source of prophecy. Remember 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Prophecy isn't an act of human will. Men moved by the Holy Spirit speak from God. One writer said that prophecies express a whole view of time beyond the power of the human mind to even conjecture. They express a concept that we even have difficulty coming to grips with. Prophecy, another author wrote, lists history from the plane of natural evolution to that of spiritual purpose and shows it to be an ordered scheme of events grounded in the decisions of the divine will. Prophecy takes history and changes it from what just naturally happens. A natural evolution of events. One thing leads to another, as we generally understand that, and sometimes we see that. Our actions cause reactions and other things unfold. Prophecy takes that natural series of events and raises it to a level where we don't see world events as just happening naturally, but to be part of a divine plan. A divine will. Decisions made by God that causes this to happen. Not just evolving on its own. That's the power of predictive prophecy. To open up our minds to those concepts and those prophecies 
can be easily tested. There are generally accepted criteria for what makes a prophecy true. And while the wording is sometimes slightly different, the gist is the same. If we're going to accept something to be truly a predictive prophecy, the horoscopes and most of those predictions that, that future tellers say today don't really fit these criteria because they have to be items that are beyond the power of man to see. If it's truly going to be a predictive prophecy, it has to be something that, that we really wouldn't have the ability to just guess or know through experience. Certain things are going to happen. Someone might say, well, you know, I predict that uh, gas prices in the next six months are going to reach $5 a gallon. Well, that's not hard to see. That's probably a pretty good prediction. We have the ability to look at supply and demand and see what's going to, you know, been taking place. That's not a predicted prophecy. A true prophecy predicts something that we couldn't know naturally on our own. Before the event transpires, and in a sufficient amount of time before it transpires, where it wouldn't be a good guess, that you wouldn't be able to just analyze something and suggest that it might happen, that the prediction must be applicable to a specific event, a specific fulfillment in the future, that the language of the prediction must be clear and understandable, not something vague with 15 possible solutions to it, and that the fulfillment itself must be clear and demonstrable, that someone can logically argue, this is the fulfillment, and let me explain to you why it fulfills this prophecy, and it makes sense after the fact. That's the criteria for predictive prophecy. That's the test that we can use today, and that we can apply to many of these things. God expected Israel to be able to test these things. You know, in the Old Testament, God spoke about prophets. He spoke about true prophets. And He spoke about false prophets. In Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, verse 20, God said, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in My name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die, God said. He told Israel, watch out because a prophet could come along and say things that I never told him to say. If he does that, put him to death. Put an individual to death who makes claims that they're speaking from God and they're not really speaking from God. Well, how would they know that? How would they know whether they were speaking presumptuously in the name of God and were not saying what God had commanded them to speak? The next verse says, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Good question. God says when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. If I said it, it will happen. If he says it and it doesn't come to pass, then I didn't say it. Then don't be afraid of him. You can put him to death. That's the test, whether it came true or not. And that's the test that we can use. By applying it to the many historical prophecies contained in Scripture, prophecies that deal with the fate of nations, like the fall of Babylon, written 200 years before it occurred. Many of these prophecies are in the book of Isaiah. That was one of the more interesting finds with the Dead Sea Scrolls that we mentioned last night. And we found these older copies of Isaiah, complete copies of Isaiah that dated 1,100 years older than what we had before. 
putting them way back in the past, and yet they still contained, contained all of these predictive prophecies. How Babylon would fall and giving descriptions of those events in Isaiah 13, 17 through 22. The fall of Egypt in Isaiah 19, verses 1 through 4, and some of the details given that it would fall more from civil unrest within than from a foreign power outside. God describing that in the pages of His book. The fall of Nineveh with its utter destruction described in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The fall of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. Describing it as multiple nations coming against it and eventually scraping the rock clean, casting everything into the sea and making it a place where fishermen would spread their nets. There's some interesting details in Ezekiel 26 that are given to us. It didn't come to pass for hundreds of years until Alexander the Great destroyed the city on the mainland and dumped all of the rocks into the sea and went out onto the island where the people had taken refuge and destroyed it and wiped it clean. And to this day, fishermen still spread their nets there because there's no city left. Hundreds of years in advance, these things were prophesied with great detail. And yet they came to pass. We can go through the pages of the Old Testament and describe the rise and fall of nations. Daniel's vision of the statue, even the coming of the Messianic kingdom, the timing that was provided, the details that are provided. Again, there's not time tonight to go through each and every one of those. One of the more amazing prophecies made by Isaiah concerning the fate of those nations is what God said about Cyrus the Great, who lived and reigned around 559 to 530 B.C. As Isaiah, who lived in 740 to 690 B.C., Talked about him. Talked about him in great detail. Isaiah, living two centuries earlier, looked beyond the Assyrian conquest of Israel in 721 B.C. to the Babylonian conquest of Judah in 605, 597, 586, the Medo-Persian destruction of Babylon in 537. He gave details of those events in the book of Isaiah. But then he also identified in great detail the individual who would lead the defeat of Babylon and allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, God says through the prophet, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and He will perform all my desire. And He declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, Your foundation will be laid. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, continuing into the next chapter, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, His anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to lose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Amazing prophecy through which Isaiah mentions Cyrus. Cyrus who will conquer the nations. Cyrus who will declare of Jerusalem it will be rebuilt, that the temple will be rebuilt. And he did that almost two centuries before Cyrus was even born. Mentioning him by name, Isaiah says. That prophecy is so astonishing that liberal scholars have attempted to post-date Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 and say that wasn't part of the original book of Isaiah. That was written by somebody else centuries later. 
The only reason they argue that is there's no way that prophecy in Isaiah 44, verse 28 through 45, verse 3 could have been made so many years before Cyrus was born. For God to mention a king, to mention him by name, and to mention what he was going to do is an astounding prophecy. By the way, there's no evidence that Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 are any different from the rest of the book. They were all written in the days of Isaiah. Two centuries before Cyrus was born, they pointed to God's authorship of this book. And they certainly cannot deny or post-date the prophecies made concerning the Messiah. They might try to do that with Isaiah, because yes, our oldest copy is still only a couple centuries B.C. It would still be hundreds of years after Cyrus the Great. But what about what Isaiah said about Jesus Christ that we have preserved for us in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Septuagint translation? The other prophecies that we have concerning the Christ that cannot be post-dated. They predate Jesus. The Jewish rabbis counted 456 Old Testament passages which predicted the Messiah for the Messianic age. Lydon estimated that there were 332 specific prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. The New Testament itself cites about 215 different Old Testament passages as being fulfilled in Jesus or the church. 215 specific passages where the New Testament says this is the fulfillment of this passage. This is this passage talks about in the Old Testament coming true either in Jesus Christ or in His church when He established it. And what we also have to remember is that the Old Testament closed out with Malachi some 400 years B.C. That means that the oldest prediction, or actually the newest prediction, was at least 400 years before Jesus was born. At least a gap of four centuries. That's impressive with Cyrus that you had almost two. With Jesus, you have at least four, and some of those prophecies going back millennia before Jesus was born. And what kind of predictions are we given? Specific predictions. Predictions about where he would be born. In Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. At Bethlehem is specifically mentioned. By the way, when Jesus was born, there were two places named Bethlehem. One in Zebulun and one in Judea. Jesus was born in the one specified in the passage. Specified as the Ephrathah, the Judea, the Judah one. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we're given that fulfillment. That he was born in this Bethlehem, and in fact, Matthew even quotes the passage. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. That he'd be born in that specific place, that his ministry would begin in Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Prophecy that was made hundreds of years before Christ was born, and yet in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, the same thing is quoted from when Jesus got ready to start his ministry. He went back to Zebulun and Naphtali. He went back there, and that's where he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he went back to Galilee of the Gentiles. He went to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
He began His ministry. That He would be beaten and spat upon in passages like Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me. My cheeks to those who pluck the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, and they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him. He describes what would happen to him. And it was fulfilled. That his garments would be divided. Psalm chapter 22 and verse 18. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. That they would pierce His hands and His feet, describing the way that He would be put to death. Psalm 22, verse 16, Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. In John chapter 20, verse 25, the other disciples were saying to Thomas, We have seen the Lord, but He said to them, Unless I see His hands and the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand in His side, I will not believe. They took Him and they crucified Him, which is a piercing of the hands and feet. And yet Jesus says, look, here's my hand. The fulfillment of that. He'd be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah said. But He'd be buried with a rich man. Treated like a common criminal in the pages of the Gospel. Crucified with a robber on His right and on His left. And yet buried in the rich man's tomb. That Christ would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's explained to us in Acts chapter 2. Peter says David could not be speaking about himself. But he looked forward and he prophesied of the Christ. We testify you today that God did not leave him in the grave. Raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of that fact, Peter said. That Christ would be both David's Lord and His Son. In Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' unique nature as the God-man resolved that paradox that the Jews were unable to truly understand. There's a case where unambiguous, clear language was used in the Old Testament, and yet their own comprehension didn't understand it. But after it took place, you can go back and you explain it, and it makes perfect sense. Not only a prophecy made some thousand years before Christ was born, but a prophecy no one could have comprehended the true conclusion to, that only God could reveal. Those prophecies couldn't have been postdated. And no man could have predicted them. And they are strong evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Only God can predict those things. Only God can do that in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I am God and there is no one like me. I'm the only one that from long ago can predict things that are yet to come to pass. I'm the only one that can make it happen according to my will. 
no matter what individuals try to do to get in the way of it taking place, to help it along. It doesn't matter. It's by the will of God that it will happen. That's why we believe. We talk about faith coming by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And a large degree of that is what we read in the prophecies and in the fulfillment of the Bible. That all the things God talked about came to pass. Not one of them was lacking, and if He predicted all of these things and they came to pass, then we believe what He says about the future. If the things that are verifiable have always been correct, then the things that we cannot verify, we accept by faith. It's not a blind faith. The faith that trusts that God has always been right before, He will be right in the future. If God has always carried out what He's done in the past, He will in the future as well. Trust in God, trust also in me. That's what Jesus said. Believe in Him, believe in me. I'm going away, I'll come again. Why should we believe that? Because He's done everything else that He said He's going to do. So when He promises a return, when He promises a judgment, when He promises a home in heaven, we believe that. When He promises that we'll be judged by His Word and we have to keep His sayings, then we believe that as well. Because He will do what he said he would do. Good enough. Thank you.